The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Benjamin Pollard with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for August 6, 2022. Tensions between the United States and China are especially high following House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan this past week. Pelosi's trip came on the heels of a House vote to subsidize the U.S. semiconductor industry. President Biden is expected to sign the bill into law, which is intended to boost U.S. competitiveness with China in the technology industry. Given the semiconductor bill and rising U.S.-China tensions, I picked an episode from the Lawfare Archive from September 22, 2018, in which Scott R. Anderson sat down with Elsa Kania to discuss China's efforts to accelerate the development of quantum technology, an emerging field that will likely bring about significant technological change. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for September 22nd, 2018. If you ask scientists what is most likely to kick off the next great wave of technological change, a good number will answer quantum mechanics, a field whose physics Albert Einstein once described as spooky, but whose potential, once tapped, could unleash exponentially faster computer processors, unbreakable cryptography, and new frontiers in surveillance technology. No one understands this better than the People's Republic of China, who over the last several years has built up an aggressive state-driven campaign to accelerate the development of quantum technology, a set of policies intended to put it at the very front of the pack for the next technological revolution, and give it all the competitive advantages such technology is likely to bring. To discuss this development, what it may mean for the future, and how the United States should respond, I sat down with Elsa Kenya an adjunct fellow with the Center for a New American Security, and the co-author of a new report on China's efforts to achieve quantum hegemony. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 349, Elsa Kenya on China's Quantum Quest. This is a really fascinating report, uh, but I want to start people out with something a little more foundational. Uh, You're talking here about quantum technology, which encompasses a whole range of different applications. Walk us through this a little bit. What is quantum technology? What is you mentioned that it's been described as having spooky properties? I think by Einstein. Uh, what does that mean in application, and where does it? Where do these properties come from? Sure. So I find quantum science and technology fascinating. Though I will admit up front, I am not a scientist. I am uh, limited in my technical understanding of this, but I've done my best in this report to present a readable and realistic impression of what the state of science and technology in this field is and where it's going and what the potential is. Though 
I think I'm in good company. Albert Einstein is said to have said, if this is correct, it signifies the end of science. Uh, Niels Bohr said, uh, those who are not shocked when they first come across quantum theory cannot possibly have understood it. So it is indeed uh, spooky, and Einstein was actually being quite derisive when he characterized uh, the notion of quantum entanglement as spooky action at a distance. There was a lot of skepticism at first about whether the physics underlying uh, what are today becoming technologies could possibly make any sense, but it is uh, fascinating because uh, technologies that actually start to leverage and employ quantum properties, such as superposition and entanglement, are actually starting to be used to develop uh, technologies such as quantum computing, communications and cryptography, as well as different forms of radar and sensing. So quantum computing has received the most attention so far. It uh, uses a, a qubit, a quantum analog of the bit, that can be in a, essentially in a superposition between zero and one or simultaneously across all possible states rather than a binary that provides exponential increases in computing power. A lot of uh, excitement about the notion of quantum supremacy or the point at which a quantum computer can surpass a classical com computer, at least by some metrics. And certain uh, players in the field, including Google, including researchers in China, claim to be on track to achieving quantum supremacy as early as this year or next, though that is just one uh, quite symbolic milestone in what will be a very long road or perhaps a marathon to the development of quantum computers that are actually fully functional and capable of delivering those massive increases in computing power against a broader range of applications. Something that is also quite powerful potentially and is more feasible in the near term is the notion of quantum cryptography, particularly a technique known as quantum key distribution, through which a one-time pad for cryptography is exchanged essentially in quantum form in a way that makes the encryption, at least in theory, uncrackable, though in actuality, in any given system, there may still be a range of shortcomings from challenges of engineering to basic human error. So it's reasons for skepticism about any whether any network will ever truly be unhackable, but quantum cryptography or the potential for future Quantum networking are believed to be uh, quite powerful, and I'd also add to that what's uh, a little bit more opaque in its uh, development and applications are different types of uh, quantum sensing that could enhance detection. Chinese military claims to be developing a quantum radar that could overcome stealth, but basic idea is leveraging these properties such as entanglement among photons to enable a level of sensitivity that is not quite as feasible with classical technologies. Well, let me let me take you back one step further before we dig too far into the application. You mentioned superposition. You mentioned entanglements. What are we talking about here? What is it that's underlying this technology that makes it quantum, that opens up this whole new realm of capabilities and possibilities that you've started laying out for us? Well, sure. At a basic level, the notion of superposition is the ability of a particle, such as a photon, to exist across all possible states simultaneously. Or the notion of entanglement involves a spooky linkage among particles, such as they are essentially their properties are interrelated, even at a distance and up to up to quite a long distance, as some experiments have since shown. The these properties of quantum physics enables quantum cryptography to be uncrackable in theory, including because if uh, if an observer were to eavesdrop upon the transmission of a message, or in this case, a one-time pad for cryptography, the quantum state would collapse and it would become known to the sender and recipient that the message had been intercepted. 
I see. Interesting. And, and so a big part of this, it sounds like, is, you know, quantum technology will let us go to a world a bina- from a binary world of zeros and ones to a world where we can communicate information with a whole range of different variables using these particles. Is that right? Is that the kind of the basis, at least for the computing half of what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I think the notion is leveraging fundamental dynamics and physics for new technologies that take us beyond uh, some of the current limitations of information technology and could pose exciting new paradigms for the processing of information in an era that is ever more data rich. Okay, interesting. Uh, So let's, let's go back to some of these applications. Now, you mentioned computer processing uh, using quantum technology that would allow us to get exponentially faster processing speeds, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned cryptography, which uses this entanglement idea, presumably, to uh, create these unbreakable codes or theoretically unbreakable codes, at least, you know, on the technical side. Probably there's still some human element of of that uh, where things can break in. Um, And these, these sensing applications... In your report, you mentioned also two more, it strikes me, although correct me if I'm wrong, maybe a little bit uh, perspective or theoretical applications, which are about materials and artificial intelligence. Can you flesh those out a little bit about Mm -hmm. what the kind of further horizon of quantum technology may look like? Oh, sure. So in theory, one of the exciting things about quantum computing is that if that level of computing capability could be brought to bear on machine learning, which is highly compute intensive, then it could enable a speed up of that process. And also, conversely, there are ways in which uh, state-of-the-art in machine learning could be used to help design new approaches to quantum computing. So potential synergies in both directions there. And there have has been some initial research showing that certain types of quantum computers or related uh, simulations could run machine learning algorithms in the future, including for data analytics. So I think that's uh, still some ways away from being practical but it, the potential is exciting and is something that uh, the Chinese government has actually highlighted as a priority in their new generation artificial intelligence development plan. So clearly something where, given China's strengths in both artificial intelligence and in quantum science and technology, there's a, a, an intention to explore some of those intersections there. Essentially, quantum materials have properties with unique effects that in some cases could have exciting applications including in next-generation semiconductors or to enable new approaches to information processing. So, for instance, topological insulators are seen as potentially exciting for that reason, given that they could have electrons moving in a more orderly way that reduces the friction otherwise prevalent in materials and expected to have exotic properties. So there's some, uh, some talk of using certain types of materials for qubits for use in quantum material that could be more robust and uh, resistant to error relative to those currently in use. Also some talk of using uh, quantum materials or materials that have thermoelectric properties as a new paradigm for energy. So a lot of of enthusiasm across a range of the basic research underway about ways in which these technologies could have uh, commercial and in some cases military applications in the future. Absolutely. So, you know, we're talking about quantum technology. It sounds like we're talking about, you know, infinitely faster computers, exponentially faster computers, not infinitely. We're talking about much faster communications. We're talking about more sensitive sensors and surveillance technology. Uh, I mean, not surveillance technology, but monitors and sensors. Uh, And we're talking about 
uh, for codes that may be all but unbreakable. Uh, so obviously a big step forward on a lot of different fronts that are very relevant to a lot of applications, as you know, commercial government, but also national security, which is part of the reason they're of such interest to us here at Lawfare. So let's go to the China side of this. Mm -hmm. um, we know that China, from your report, we know that China is very interested in this technology. What does this? What shape has this interest taken? What have we seen the Chinese public policy towards this quantum technology begin to look like? So China has uh, some history of investing in research in quantum science and technology dating back decades in some cases. So this does some of the recent advances do build upon a fairly robust foundation of prior research in quantum control and quantum information. And increasingly, these technologies have been elevated as a priority as Xi Jinping is, is advancing a national strategy for innovation-driven development, So, which implies a fairly radical transformation of China's model of economic development and approach to military modernization through putting a focus on innovation at the core. And China has launched a series of national mega projects, including quantum computing and communications, aiming for major advances by 2030. So clearly at the level of uh, China's top leadership, including Xi Jinping, there is a focus on quantum technologies as potentially revolutionary and as a opportunity for China to achieve a first mover advantage in a new realm of technology in which the U.S. has a... In, in some respects, the U.S. and other players do have a lead for now and have a long history of pioneering in this field, but field also in which there are opportunities for China to make rapid advances and try to leapfrog ahead through the massive investments that are being undertaken. So the Chinese government has uh, established a national laboratory for quantum information science, which uh, so apparently receiving over a billion in funding to start and up to 15 billion in the years to come, approximately. So it appears that, uh, and it's said, that Chinese researchers have essentially unlimited resources to undertake long-term research and development in this domain, funding through a range of national science programs and science technology initiatives, including funding from the military and development being undertaken by the Chinese defense industry. So it's... Uh, Really uh, quite staggering to see that the Chinese government is willing to place big bets on technologies that remain quite uncertain. And also the Chinese private sector, including companies like Baidu and Alibaba, are also joining the race. And Alibaba alone is uh, pledged to devote uh, up to uh, $15 billion to disruptive and emerging technologies with quantum computing among them and has partnered with the Chinese Academy of Sciences to start to develop quantum computing, including exploring uh, initial cloud-based options to make this uh, early capability more available. So it's uh, certainly a lot of initiatives underway and uh, very well resourced at this point. What is the lens that we see these Chinese policymakers who are developing these policies looking at quantum technology? At? Are these initiatives that are coming from uh, people who are focused on questions of national security and defense and looking for capabilities in that area? Is it primarily commercial agencies or private sector actors who are going to be primarily concerned with the private sector applications? What is the What can we infer a little bit from what their intentions are for this technology from the people who are paying the most attention to it? So interestingly, one of the apparent catalysts for China's elevation of the importance of quantum cryptography in particular was actually the Snowden incident, which revealed to China the extent of their vulnerability to superior U.S. Uh, signals intelligence and cyber espionage capabilities and really highlighted that China was relatively weak and 
there's really Catalyze a focus on enhancing cybersecurity and developing indigenous technologies that could in theory be more secure. So the focus on quantum cryptography as a, in theory, perfect shield ag- against hacking emerged in this context. And it's, uh, it's notable that Xi Jinping in uh, mid-2013, along with other members of the Politburo, did actually visit a laboratory and see a demonstration of some of the research underway in quantum cryptography. And uh, himself in sessions around the time started to talk about the importance of indigenous innovation to enhance cybersecurity and including quantum cryptography and communications as a potential solution there. So I think that is appears to be part of the backstory for why China launched this massive mega project in this field. And Pan Jianwei himself, who's a, arguably China's most prominent quantum scientist and appears to have been a driving force behind much of this, uh, has said in, in an interview that the Snowden incident was also for him a reminder of the importance of his research and accelerant for his efforts in this field. So that appears to be part of the backdrop for this, a deep concern with cybersecurity and a search for options to change that paradigm and potentially even look to offset U.S. advantages there. Now, you mentioned this strategy of pursuing mega projects and the national laboratories, and these are strategies and terms that we are familiar with from all sorts of state-driven technology, technological development Mm -hmm. in China and in other governments as well. Um, How does what China is doing regarding quantum technology compare to other technologies? Is it – are we confident that this is a focus – that they are putting a lot of energy in, even compared to other technological fields? Or is it simply a reflection of how much more investment they're putting in research and development as a whole that this is getting this level of attention? A great question. I'd say that uh, we're seeing a larger pivot to a focus on truly disruptive innovation on the part of the Chinese government under Xi Jinping, who, as I mentioned, has really placed this notion of innovation-driven development at the level of national strategy. And I think this reflects a recognition that for China to overcome challenges like slowing economic growth and to escape the trap that it might otherwise confront, there is a need to change its uh, model of development to one that is more innovative rather than relying upon the absorption of foreign technologies. So there have been major investments and increases in support for basic science and focus on long-term research and development. There have also been efforts to expand and build upon STEM education and to increase the quality of uh, training for future scientists in China, including through sending students abroad to leading universities and trying to recruit top talent through uh, state-driven talent plans in some cases. So say this should be seen within the broader context of China's ambitions to be a leading player in innovation by as soon as 2030 or 2035 to potentially surpass the U.S. as a leader or science and technology superpower in Xi Jinping's words. So there is a quite high level of ambition that that is clear across uh, artificial intelligence where China has declared in a plan that they will lead the world also by 2030 and also as well as this focus on quantum technologies, but it's one of uh, 15 or 16 different mega projects in total. Not all of them are receiving quite this level of of attention, though there are continue to be major efforts in things like semiconductors and aerospace technologies. But I'd say that quantum science and technology appears to be among the top priorities within this broader agenda, though certainly it reflects this broader uh, pattern of an increased focus on emerging technologies that are seen as critical to China's future national power. 
And some of this is informed by the historical legacy of China's uh, recognition that in the past, it was weak, when it was weaker and center of humiliation, it was lagging behind in science and could therefore, as Xi Jinping has highlighted in, in some of his remarks on the importance of innovation, could therefore be preyed upon by foreign powers. I think the notion that the China dream, the rejuvenation of China, that Xi Jinping has uh, placed at the centerpiece of his rule so far is predicated upon the importance of leveraging science and technology as a means of enhancing national power and ensuring China's rise, or in his in his view, rejuvenation to its rightful place in the world. Okay. Interesting. So let, you mentioned the role that, you know, going to outside talent, sending Chinese students to outside universities to get educated, trying to bring top talent internally uh, within China, and the role that's playing in this plan. What interaction does this plan have with the outside world? Are these innovations that we have reason to believe would benefit humanity more broadly? Or has China's practice generally been to hold these technology much more close hold? And how easy will they be for other countries to piggyback on if there are any major advances by China? Let's say that's a very good question and one for which I think we'll see the answer play out in the years to come. And so far, uh, a lot of a lot of international research in quantum science has been fairly open and collaborative. A lot of it has, until recently, primarily been occurring in the U.S. and in our allies and partners. But uh, China is a different model insofar as a lot of their innovation in this field has seemed to be more indigenous, though also enabled by collaboration. So when China launched the world's first quantum satellite in August 2016, it was actually not just a Chinese satellite, but a Sino-Austrian satellite, and that uh, quantum experiments in space science program was undertaken in collaboration between the Chinese Academy of Sciences and the Austrian Academy of Sciences, though perhaps uh, perhaps less credit was given in Chinese official media to the Austrian side of that than uh, might have been merited, but it, uh, it did reflect actually a collaboration that was in part uh, driven by the fact that uh, the European Union initially was not willing to fund a comparable project. So the amount of funding that China has uh, been willing to devote to even longer term experimental endeavors like the like Mozo or Mises, the world the quantum satellite, did, I think has been an attractor of uh, collaborators and scientists uh, within China internationally to participate in projects of this level of ambition and perhaps perhaps another organization or another nation could have been the first to launch a quantum satellite even years earlier if they if there had been more of a willingness to fund and support that. There also are continue to be fairly robust collaborations between Chinese researchers and other scientists internationally. I think some of these collaborations are clearly mutually beneficial and the potential benefits of these technologies could be tremendous, including uh, in a number of the commercial applications. But there are, in some cases, reasons for concern that the Chinese government sees that sort of engagement as a one-way street, that it's uh, intended as a bringing in of uh, international innovation resources, as some Chinese S&T plans phrase it, or a way to take advantage of uh, capabilities beyond China, whether that be talent or equipment, and to ensure that it can contribute to indigenous innovation in China, while perhaps in some cases being less willing to enable the benefits to diffuse and be shared beyond China. So, for instance, at one point, the Chinese government appeared to be considering policies and their implementation still remains to be seen, but that would limit the sharing of scientific data and research beyond China without prior approval. So if that is the route that China chooses to go of trying to draw in 
resources from the world to advance its own science and technological development without being willing to enable that collaboration and resulting diffusion of these technological advancements to be reciprocal and uh, and mutually beneficial, that could start to become problematic and wouldn't be a positive direction for the field as a whole, given that uh, scientific collaboration and the flow of ideas, knowledge, and talent across borders is quite integral to to science and has also been a major advantage for the U.S. that have had this open and collaborative model of, of innovation that uh, China may... Uh, want half of that, half of that, but a sort of semi-permeable approach to that sort of engagement. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story. 
that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Absolutely. You know, one of the big developments we've kind of been tracking over the last year, last several years, but I think in the last year it's really come to a head, both in the United States and in other countries, is that is you've had this reaction uh, to Chinese involvement in the local economy, particularly in the technology sector. So in the United States, we've seen a number of new laws adopted this year that are aimed at you know essentially restricting Chinese and, and other types of foreign investment, but particularly with China in mind, into sectors that are seen as particularly sensitive. Um, telecommunications being one of the leading ones, the ZTE controversy has uh, been a major uh, media focus of this, but that's just one aspect of a much bigger conversation that's happening. Do we have a sense as to whether that those concerns have begun to affect how other governments, the non-Chinese governments, have in- interacted with China and how China has begun to respond in the quantum space? Or has so far that been removed from those conversations? So I'd say that There have started to be more concerns about ways in which uh, funding from Chinese entities for research undertaken could have unintended externalities. So, for instance, in Australia in particular, and some of my colleagues at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute have done uh, great work on highlighting these issues, there have been cases where a state-owned defense conglomerate, uh, CETC, the China Electronics Technology Group, actually funding and supporting research in Australian universities without it being quite clear exactly what the outcome will be in terms of the results and and uh, benefits of that research. Whom will they belong to? Uh, are there risks that uh, advances in dual-use technologies resulting from that funding and collaboration could be exploited? So there are a lot of tricky questions in the space, and this is something that uh, a number of countries are starting to grapple with. How do you balance between the clear benefits of cooperation and engagement with uh, Chinese scientists and and continue to uh, foster collaboration globally in this field while also being aware of the ways in which those sorts of interactions can be exploited and sometimes appear to be problematic in ways that are not quite transparent. So I'd say that uh, there are ways in which uh, 
this can be seen within the pattern of Chinese attempted acquisitions and investments, which can, in some cases, contribute to a broader strategy for tech transfer through licit and illicit means. And there are reasons for concern about these issues in the context of quantum science and technology, particularly as this field becomes more competitive and the potential benefits of a first mover advantage here could be enormous. So there are there are reasons for concern, but I think also opportunities to sustain cooperation with certain awareness and parameters in play. So for instance, uh, in some cases, for instance, in the semiconductor sector, China has a history of aggressive poaching of talent, sometimes aimed at having the uh, individuals in question take sensitive technology or uh, blueprints even with them. And I think they're, so they're given China's track record on issues of IP theft and tech transfer across the board. There are reasons to look carefully at the risks that may arise in quantum science and technology while also being being sure to look at this in a balanced way and recognize that the, again, the benefits of cooperation in science are, the U.S. has benefited more from that than anyone else. And I think we can continue to do so if we're careful about calibrating those uh, costs and benefits. Absolutely. So we've already started talking a little bit about the outside China picture. Let's continue on that vein. You gave us a really good overview of what the quantum technology development sector, if you will, looks like in China. Really strong state focus, unlimited or nearly unlimited funding in some regards. Some private sector actors stepping in as well, but it sounds like predominantly state-driven. Um, how does that compare to how the rest of the world is approaching development in this area, particularly the United States, but also you know Europe and other governments that may have industries, private sector actors, or governments that are interested in developing these capabilities? Sure. So I'd say that uh, China's quest to advance quantum technology should be seen within this broader landscape of global enthusiasm about these technologies. And this includes a history of active efforts in the United States, often with funding from places like DARPA or IARPA or the Department of Energy, as well as different research undertaken within the U.S. military. Also quite exciting research happening in Australia and and even Canada, which has set up a quantum valley and also launched a national initiative. I believe the European Union is also looking to fund quantum-related research more actively. So I think this is a global trend to recognizing the potential of these technologies going forward and to starting to devote greater resources to them. I'd say in the U.S., what's received the most attention so far is have been the efforts of companies like IBM, Google, and Microsoft, which are quite actively pursuing quantum computing and claiming they are on track to reach a quantum supremacy sometime soon, though that uh, that's, continues to be disputed. At one point, Google had re- released uh, Bristlecone, a new quantum computing chip, and researchers from the Chinese company Alibaba promptly responded that they thought Google was farther than they claimed to be, given the error rates and other shortcomings of their qubits. So certainly... It's a complicated landscape and one in which a number of players from universities to leading companies are involved. I'd say one of the things that's exciting that's happening in the U.S. as we speak, and in certain respects my report has been overtaken by events, is that the National Quantum Initiative Act was, I believe, passed by the House uh, today. So uh, that's exciting to see that the U.S. government is starting to recognize that although there is a lot of dynamism in these commercial initiatives, having greater government support for long-term research and development and for STEM education to support a long-term talent pipeline in this field will also be critical if the U.S. is to 
remain a leader in, uh, in, the, in this realm of science and technology. Absolutely. So let's let's build on that a little bit. I mean, what has been the United States government's approach thus far to fostering the sorts of developments that we see the Chinese government pursuing so avidly? Has there been a proactive policy or has it primarily left it to academics and the private sector? I'd say there's been a fair amount of U.S. government funding with uh, quite some history there to support a basic and applied research in quantum science and technology, though by some accounts, uh, the funding has been inconsistent or intermittent or certain projects about that were gaining some momentum were later defunded. So I, I think there have been some challenges and the lack of a overall national strategy, including the lack of a coherent discipline for quantum science. For instance, few universities have a dedicated department for it. And also this science is inherently interdisciplinary in nature. So you require a lot of collaboration among scientists and engineers from with different sorts of expertise. And some of the equipment is so specialized that having a, that the investments required would, would be beyond what the average university can, uh, can muster. So certainly, I think uh, it's quite encouraging to see that the U.S. government is moving towards more active and strategic support for quantum technology going forward. And I think the uh, bill that's uh, just been passed in the House is a good start, though certainly remains, though it remains to be seen how all of this will play out going forward. Well, so what does this bill that we saw just come through the House, uh, presumably still awaiting Senate debate uh, and approval, if it gets that far, but what does it do? What is it proposed to change? Let's see. So the National Quantum Initiative Act, uh, as it's currently written, well, first of all, just recognizes the importance of quantum information science as a discipline, both to the American economy and to future national security. And it calls for the establishment of a National Quantum Coordination Office in the Office of Science and Technology Policy that can support and coordinate research as well as future standards development. So presumably this would come with a ramping up uh, funding for long-term research and development over the next 10 years. I believe the bill also includes a focus on fostering public-private partnership and also having more active efforts to start to develop standards for uh, potential post-quantum cryptography and some of the adaptations required to adjust to the future threat of quantum computing to current forms of encryption. So I think the bill also looks to start to look at STEM education, which, as I mentioned, I think will be vital to ensuring that the United States has the talent and the workforce to carry research forward. And it's uh, yeah, it's it. I'd say all in all, I haven't I have not read the whole bill in detail yet since it was just passed uh, this morning, I believe. But it is does seem to be a quite promising initiative that could put more momentum behind research in this realm. Well, let's let's say. Regardless of what this act says, regardless of what this legislation says, what from your perspective is it that the United States should be doing? Is it a primarily a question of funding? Is it a question of institutional support? Uh, is it a question of you know facilitating talent exchanges and sorts of exchanges with academic communities uh, overseas? I mean, what are the main thrusts of public policy that you think the United States should be pursuing to address this clear policy priority on the part of the Chinese government? So some of the recommendations in my report have evidently been overtaken by events, but a couple of those I would highlight, as I mentioned, ensuring American competitiveness in quantum science, including through, again, long, long-term consistent support for research and development, 
There's a lot of talk of a race, particularly in quantum computing, but this will be more of a marathon. It'll play out perhaps over decades and decades to come. And there also may be certain uh, technologies and applications in this field where there will not be as much private sector support and enthusiasm, so government funding there will be especially important. As I mentioned, talent, including ensuring that the U.S. continues to educate and attract uh, top researchers from, from around the world, welcoming students and researchers and encouraging them to stay, I think, is a critical piece of this as well, and making STEM education more affordable and accessible for those looking to move into the space. Another important a dimension of policy should be looking ahead to the future threat of a Q-day or Q2K, the point at which a quantum computer could, in theory, break most forms of classical encryption that we currently rely upon. And again, it's hard to estimate exactly when this could occur, but it is clear that quantum computers are approaching closer to a point at which the use of Shor's algorithm to factor the large numbers upon which cryptography relies could be more feasible. And at that point, there could be quite... Uh, dramatic effects on our current information technology ecosystem unless there is adequate preparation in terms of the development of uh, approaches to post-quantum cryptography and also its widespread implementation. So I think it seems unlikely that this will happen out of the blue, so there is time to prepare, but I'm more concerned about the challenges of coordination and implementation of making such significant transitions in our current ecosystem, given that in cybersecurity basic vulnerabilities that have been known for years in some cases still haven't been fixed. So this will be a challenge in terms of evaluating those risks and starting to make that transition, especially in older legacy systems. I'd also add to that, I think, uh, as we mentioned, there are, there are reasons for uh, concern about uh, what I call quantum surprise, the notion that uh, China or another player in the space could advance more rapidly than we're expecting, or simply the fact that uh, these technologies are uncertain and Quantum computing and other uh, quantum technologies, such as quantum radar, could remain decades away for decades to come or could or could become operational as much more rapidly than we're expecting. So I think from the perspective of intelligence analysis, for instance, developing a better set of indicators and potential bellwethers of what to look for as these ad advances are, are occurring could be one approach to trying to evaluate this uh, these developments um, with more nuance and realistically going forward, I think on the defense side of things, clearly a number of quantum technologies have uh, potentially quite impactful applications in national security. And I think the U.S. military and national security community should actively explore these options going forward, and which I know is uh, currently underway, but also something the Chinese military is actively looking to do. So Chinese submarine designers uh, claim that next-generation submarines could use quantum navigation to enable uh, independence from Beidou, their counterpart to GPS, or use quantum communications to communicate securely underwater. A future Chinese quantum radar could overcome stealth and detect U.S. stealth fighters and bombers, and some of this may... It's difficult to evaluate with the information available and the level of technical uncertainty if or when this will become feasible, but certainly in quantum radar and sensing, metrology more broadly, as well as timing and navigation, there are some qu quite exciting applications there that I think uh, should be should be explored both from the perspective of opportunities for the U.S. military and potential, potential challenges to, to current U.S. capabilities. And I think I'd add, add to that, I think, uh, Given some of the developments underway in Congress and the importance of policymaking in the space, uh, 
We also call on the report, and my uh, colleague and co-author John Costello uh, has highlighted in particular the importance of of restoring scientific and technical expertise through Congress, potentially through refunding the Office of Technology Assessment, which uh, has a history of providing deep assessments of technologies and relevant actionable policy insights. And uh, there's been some movement and momentum to reinvigorate OTA, and I hope that uh, Given the challenges of quantum technologies, artificial intelligence, and other complex and exciting technologies that are so rapidly developing, Congress will look to uh, ensure that it's as as informed as possible in thinking about the policy challenges along the way. I think finally, I'd also say there are, as we discussed earlier, there are cases and growing concerns in the U.S. about Chinese IP theft and tech transfer and a range of different avenues through which that is undertaken, from cyber espionage to human espionage to uh, uh, problematic acquisitions and investments. So given the strategic significance of quantum science and technology, having a review undertaken of the risks from a counterintelligence perspective or a continued continued uh, examination of how best to respond to some of these tactics uh, through uh, reforms to CFIUS, for instance, and other safeguards in place will also be an important dimension of uh, ensuring security and competitiveness going forward. So quite a lot of policy options that could be undertaken, some of which appear to be well underway with this uh, bill currently in Congress. But I think there are reasons for optimism, but also I would argue that the U.S. should not be complacent. In recent history, American military technological advantage has been a key pillar of power and predominance, but today that is starting to change. It's no longer the case that China can't innovate, and by contrast, sometimes there's too much hype or exaggeration of China's potential in in innovation, and reality always falls somewhere between those extreme perspectives, but it is clear that China is catching up and is devoting and mobilizing considerable resources for quantum computing, communications, and other technologies and applications in the space. This will be an important space to watch going forward, and it's been exciting to have the chance to uh, attempt to create an initial baseline on where China is today, what where they're looking to go, and what some of the potential implications of those ambitions may be. Absolutely. Let's go to from the policy to the political a little bit, just for a moment. Uh-oh. Uh, so we, of course, know that we – people have different approaches to how the government – different views of how the government should engage with things like technological development. Um, the Obama administration, for instance, uh, was fairly proactive about supporting certain types of technology in certain areas that they're supportive of. I think of the you know case of support for solar technology being one that would prove very controversial. Uh, you know, The Republican Party has been – uh, fairly critical of a lot of those initiatives, uh, and of course now is in control of Congress and the White House. Uh, have we seen a change in how the different parties have viewed this technology or similar sorts of technologies? Is there space for uh, this policy to be taken up in the current political environment in Congress and the White House? How realistic are some of the policy proposals you're putting forward given the current political environment or the way the political environment seems likely to be for the next several years, which is fairly hyperpartisan? I suppose we'll find out, but there may be some reasons for optimism insofar as there appears to be a bipartisan consensus emerging on the importance of ensuring American competitiveness in technologies like artificial intelligence and quantum computing and the the new bills introduced, the initiatives that may be soon underway, are, I think, are a, are a good start, though certainly 
I hope that these will move forward and be implemented. And there has been a a change from uh, the past administration to this one in terms of the level of focus on and support for science. I hope that this administration is starting to recognize these challenges and appears to be devoting more attention and resources to recognizing that uh, these aren't political issues. The basic solutions and policy approaches are quite simple and have a lot of history. American innovation is not a birthright, you could say. It's something that uh, has been fostered in the past through government funding for science, the a lot of the support for science and for STEM education during the Cold War that created a foundation for a lot of the progress and success we've seen since. And I think a lot of these, we've seen the success of these approaches in the past, and we've seen that government can play a critical role in fostering innovation. Of course, there's a difference between common sense S&T policy and a more state-driven approach to industrial policy with picking winners or national champions. But what concerns me the most about what China is doing today is that they are taking lessons learned and approaches from how America used to prioritize science in the past, and they are introducing them into their own models. So there's now a rough Chinese counterpart to DARPA. There's even a uh, small group in China that's intended perhaps to be a response to the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental to foster the adoption of commercial technologies by the Chinese military. So there are a number of downsides to China's more state-driven approach and elements of industrial policy that they have undertaken. But the Chinese government is also in their support for basic research and their focus on STEM education and concentration on human capital is also in some ways adopting the best elements of U.S. policies of the past. And I hope that we can uh, recapture and revitalize our own engagement in and pursuit of these initiatives, given the importance of these technologies. And I'd say that uh, the focus on strategic competition and concern over great power rivalry today, particularly as is playing out in these technologies, has been an impetus at least for D.C. to start paying more attention to the fact that uh, if we want to ensure innovation going forward in a much more competitive landscape, there does need to be much more active investment in the future. And hopefully that and hopefully these are issues that will go beyond partisanship and uh, really forge a new consensus on their strategic significance going forward. So let's let's imagine a scenario where you are stuck in an elevator with President Trump for 30 seconds tomorrow. Given the current political environment, given the current policy environment, what is the one thing you would encourage him to do on this issue, given his capabilities, as within his control, without any new legislation? What's the most important priority that he should be carrying forward on this question of quantum technology? I think I'd say, again, support science, support STEM education, scholarships for PhD students to go into this field. I mean, I think a lot of the answers here are fairly basic. I just hope that there is follow through and implementation of some simple solutions that could have high impact. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a second to share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a rating wherever you found us. To find Elsa Kenya's report, Quantum Hegemony, visit cnas.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yam. As always, thank you for listening.